Insecure leaders are the worst kind of leaders. Insecurity to me is the Achilles heel of many leaders. It is the, the one trait that can derail a leader more so than anything else. On this episode of Leadership Unboxed, we're joined by Brian Marcotte, President and CEO of the Business Group on Health, a nonprofit organization that represents large employers' perspectives on national health policy issues. During our conversation, Brian shares valuable insights on how having fun and laughter at work can optimize business performance, the art of delegation for first-time managers, and the common traits of good and bad leaders. Let's get started on Leadership Unboxed with Brian Marcotte. Welcome to our podcast. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. All right. To start us off, Brian, can you share with us your origin story? Yeah. I grew up in, I would say, a middle-class neighborhood in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. So big Patriots fan, as you know. I was the third of four boys in a family that had a very strong work ethic. And we all began working, my brothers and I, at a young age. My father worked two jobs. He was a fireman and then he was a state fire inspector, but he also was a cobbler on the side. And so he was always repairing shoes in his off hours. He had equipment in our garage to do so. And he also worked for another cobbler. So always busy. And my mother was an administrative assistant in the public schools. So given that they were both working full time, we all had to be pretty independent. So we all had chores. And I would think it really made me independent at a young age. I could do pretty much everything. I could do laundry. I could cook meals. I could do whatever I needed to do to survive at a young age. My first job was paperboy with my brother. We had the Sunday paper, you know, the big thick one with all the inserts. That was quite a hassle to drag around. But I pretty much did anything I could to make some money back then. Whether it was cut grass, shovel snow, babysits, to do whatever you needed to do to make a little cash. But as I got into high school and college, I basically worked three jobs to put me through college. I paid for my college tuition myself, got out with no debt at the end of that. I worked landscaping in the summers, which you want to talk about work ethic. That's, that's pretty labor intensive, pretty hard job, but I thoroughly enjoyed the work. I worked in a pharmacy on the weekends and during the, I would say off season from landscaping more, more so than just the weekends. And I played in the band for nine years between high school, college, and a bit after college with two of my older brothers and some others. We're basically playing every weekend. We made decent money. And the combination of those two things got me through college. I didn't have much of a social life outside of that, but I, I did pay my way through college. And I think for me as a leader, the work ethic it instilled in me carried through, I think every job I as I advanced in my career and, and I led as an, I led by example, work ethic was part of the example that I led by. So it's kind of, you know, I think part of who I am is because of my upbringing and what we needed to do. And I have to say that during the summers when we worked, we paid rent, my brothers and I, to my parents to help pay for bills. So it was very different. I would say there were my kids have grown up, but, um, but, uh, it served me well. 
there's something to be said about earning your calluses. And I'm actually really impressed that you're able to find a little bit of time as well for yourself, which is not easy considering the schedule and the obligations that you had. Well, I have to say the band was both um, an outlet and a joy as well as an opportunity to make money. So it was a win-win. There you go. Now, it's always fascinating to hear and learn about people who influenced leaders. Who were some of those people in your life and how did they shape your values and beliefs? Yeah, I would say that the most influential people in my life were different leaders I've worked for in particular. And growing up in a blue collar environment, you didn't really get exposure to professional people very often. So my, I was fortunate enough, my first professional boss taught me a very important lesson. And that was the importance of having fun when you worked. And, and I was very fortunate that this happened at an early stage of my career because the, the ability to laugh and enjoy the environment you're working in is such a critical component, critical component to, to successful work, successful teams. And I learned that at an early age, and I always carried that forward in any job that I had um, and, uh, and also tried to set the stage by by uh, allowing practical jokes and allowing laughter and encouraging that type of environment so that you worked hard, but you didn't take yourself too seriously in the process. We all spent so many hours back in the day when people actually worked in an office more so than they do today. We, we spent so much time there that you want to enjoy the environment, you want to enjoy the people that you work with. And it's, it's also a way of humanizing the leader, making you more approachable by letting your head down and enjoying the, the, the environment and the people that you're working with. So I think that was, and I still have a relationship with that boss today. And, and that was so many years ago. And, and so I think that was a real important lesson. And, and I, I was fortunate that I had a sequence of some leaders that were very influential at times when I needed that type of influence. I think that as I grew in my career and I took on more management responsibility, I happened to work for somebody who taught me, taught me the art of uh, delegation. And, and, you know, delegation is one of the first challenges of a new manager, right? It's, it's, you're moving into a role where you have to give up some of the work that you do directly and let other people do that work. And you have to trust them to do that work. And that's a very hard thing for people moving from an individual contributor role into a manager role to do. You always have this belief that if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And trusting others to do the work that you're accountable for as a manager or as a leader, and that you may have to represent that body of work, is a hard thing to let go of, but it's, it's critically important. And she taught me the importance of setting clear expectations. The, and, you know, you, the, the old saying, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. 80% is awesome. 80% right is awesome to give your team the autonomy to, to own the problem, own the issue. While you're still accountable, you still have to check the work because you are accountable, but don't micromanage. Let them figure it out. Give them clear goals, expectations, and deliverables. You know, so I would say those are two of the good leaders I had earlier in my career, but woven in between a lot of my roles, I've also had some 
some, I would say, poor leaders. And poor leaders can also be very influential in terms of what they teach you not to do. I've had several bosses who were terrible leaders, and I, and I think there were several fatal flaws of leadership that they taught me. One had to do with lack of respect of your team. Another had to do with insecurity. And another had to do with, I would say, deflecting accountability. And, 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 I'll, and I'll give you examples of, of each of these. And, and I'll start with respect. I think I've always told my kids, you treat the custodial staff and the kitchen staff with the same respect you would treat the CEO, the CEO of the company. That's the way I've always operated. I always treated everyone with respect, regardless of who they were. And when it comes to your team, when you demonstrate that type of respect, you will get that respect back. This has all, always served me well in the course of my career. I would actually weed out leaders on my team based on how they treated people. Over the course of a long career, you fire people. I fired people for performance, but I've also fired people for behaviors. And I fired people both. But how you treat people is paramount to good leader. I had one leader who was so arrogant, so disrespectful and dismissive of his team that nobody wanted to work with the person. He was a very smart individual, but he was best as an individual contributor, not as a leader. So shifting gears, insecurity. Insecurity to me is the Achilles heel of many leaders. It is the, the one trait that can derail a leader more so than anything else, I think. Insecure leaders are the worst kind of leaders. Insecure leaders do not develop their talent because they fear someone will demonstrate they can do their job as well as them. And so they become awesome. Your leaders often have to be the funnel for all information flow, flow it up to um, C-suite or other leaders in the organization and then flowing back down to the team. No one can be the thought of all knowledge. You, wrap, you have good leaders wrap themselves with talented people who compliment them and who hopefully are smarter than them so that they can excel and ex execute the agenda that, that, that a leader is given. I had a leader who had to be that fun all the time. And I remember walking down the hall once we might have talked about this story when we were, we were chatting early on. I, I ran into her and she asked me where I was going. So I'm going to an HR M&A meeting. That was my meeting. We Compensation and benefits owned HRMA for the organization when I was there at Honeywell and to do the due diligence on all comp benefit programs and impact on the deal. And this person had two very strong people on her team in this meeting who actually drove their functions assessment of the impact on the deal. And she asked, Well, how come I wasn't invited? I said, Well, because these two people, not using names, were exceptional at what they did, and they would drive all the work. And the other people I needed in the meeting to kind of go through the information. Well, next thing I know, I'm being called in the office of my boss, and he's asking me, how come I'm not inviting this person to my meetings? And I said, because, hey, the person doesn't need to be there, and if I invite her, none of the work's going to get done because she cannot disseminate all of this to her team and micromanage that work. It's just not efficient. It's not effective. And that's why I did meet. I think that's one example. Another example, a quick example I'll give is a leader who actually led for a period of time the HR function. 
and we had an HR leadership team meeting and in the middle of this meeting, I asked this person a question, which in a respectful way was maybe challenging to some degree, a point of view, but throwing it out there as a question, looking for guidance as to why we're heading in this direction. We go on break, this person comes up to me and says, are you upset with me for some reason? No. He goes, are you mad at me for any reason? I said, no. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So I asked my colleague, I said, do you have any idea what John is talking about? And he said, you openly challenged him in a meeting. I said, I didn't challenge him. I asked him a question. And uh, he can't handle that. And so we figured that you had to have an issue with him to do that. So, I mean, so there are, those are two very simple examples of insecurity and leadership, but it, it has always proven to me to be the worst character flaw a leader can have, particularly when it comes to developing the people and growing, growing their people. And I would say the last area of my bad leaders have demonstrated what not to do is in the area of accountability. It's an important, it's important for a team's, I would say, psychological safety that they know their leader has their back. And ultimately the buck stops here. Ultimately I'm accountable for the work, regardless of who on my team is doing the work. I'm going to have to fall on the sword for that because the work came out of my group. I mean, if there are performance issues and like that I need to deal with, then I need to deal with. But I worked with someone who would throw their mother on the bus to save their ass. Uh, even when it was their mistake. And you can't build trust in an environment like that. And it makes it very difficult to work for a person like that if you always feel like you're in a, a CYA situation. So, so respect, insecurity, accountability are the three things I've learned from bad leaders. The best leaders push you outside your comfort zone. They stretch you. They'll give you the air cover. Um, the CEO of Honeywell that I worked with, worked for for 12 years, was the toughest person I ever worked for, stretched the hell out of me, but he made me a better leader and, and uh, pushed me in ways that I didn't realize I could be pushed in a constructive way. So they develop you and encourage you, encourage you, and they also give you honest feedback. And I think that's, that's, those are examples of leaders, I would say, have influenced me in a very positive way, but in a negative way that also taught me a lot of things about leadership, what it should be and what it should be. Thank you for sharing all of that information. Now, I did want to touch on one of the aspects that you mentioned for leaders who aren't effective, who aren't good. You know, every leader, I'm sure, faces moments of doubt or insecurity. So when you do encounter that, to avoid making that a habit, or a norm, what would you suggest are small steps that they could take in reflection before acting on that feeling? You know, I think as gals at points in their career, as they're, as they're coming up and they're stepping into leadership roles, but I think there's a difference between insecurity and stepping outside your comfort zone. Secure people are going to have some doubts and they're going to have maybe some confidence challenges when they step outside their comfort zone because they're not familiar with the, with the material or they're stepping into doing a presentation. 
And maybe they haven't done that before or they haven't done it to such an audience before or whatever the case may be. That's not so much insecurity as it is maybe a bit of lack of confidence in the moment because I'm not yet comfortable with everything that I'm doing, but that's how you grow. So I think insecurity is feeling threatened by other people who you think may be better than you and you're trying to protect yourself. It's a, it's a very different thing. So I would say it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to be not as confident as you would hope to be. That's all part of growth. And I think we started this conversation before we went live about does this stuff just come natural to you now? And yes, it becomes more natural to me now, but early on in my career, it didn't. I mean, I can remember one of my biggest challenges was presentations, getting in front of audiences and doing a presentation preparation I would go through to do that. When with each one of them, and it's the more I did, the more comfortable I got, I would still get nervous or have some anxiety about getting up in front of the group. But I was much more confident in my capability the more I did and the more comfortable I got with it. So, so I would say, believe in yourself, trust yourself, you know, do your homework and you'll be okay. Stepping outside of your comfort zone is real important. Stretching yourself is real important. No one's going to be comfortable in all of that. So just recognize that that comes with the territory of growth. Thank you for that. And it mentioned earlier on just having fun and having, having fun and creating an atmosphere where the team is motivated or energized. How do you personally, what energizes you? Well, I think actually growing and developing people has always been one of the things I've enjoyed most about leadership, mentoring people, coaching people. It's a double-edged sword to some degree because if you have people who are not performing well, it's very important to give feedback in the moment and not wait to an annual performance review. I think the best leaders provide ongoing feedback. If you have an employee who's completely shocked about performance review they're getting, then you didn't do your job as a leader or this person is in complete denial because I had one like that where they were getting constant feedback, but during the performance review or we had a performance discussion about it's time to provide. And they were completely shocked that they were moving out of the organization. You would talk about self-awareness. This person had. So, so, you know, I think that it's, God, what was the question again? Yeah. Oh. It was just what energizes you. And you said developing yeah. people and teams. Yeah. Developing people and teams. And I also think work that I'm passionate about. So I think since I've say semi-retired, I'm spending a lot of time with health tech companies. Healthcare has always been a big part of my my career. And while I had global compensation benefits at Honeywell and led, I eventually moved on to lead business group on health, which was really focused on health. Health is all, healthcare has always been a passionate part of what I did in my career. And now I'm working with seven or eight health tech companies in a board of advisory capacity. And there's a lot of coaching and mentoring that goes into that as well as trying to help these companies address a specific healthcare need in our healthcare ecosystem that I'm particularly passionate about. And, and so if you can find passion in the work that you're doing, but also if you enjoy working with people and 
bringing people along. It's a home run for me. Got it. And you mentioned before around trust and how, you know, rapport is important to a successful team. What strategies do you have or have you seen been successful to build trust and rapport with teams? You know, I think I've always tried to make myself approachable, always had an open door policy, you know, encourage people, anyone could stop in. I wasn't hierarchical at all, but sometimes the people that work for you are, and they can be intimidated by title. So if you're a VP of anything, that can be intimidating for some people. They will not necessarily want to pop in and say, hey, can we kick something around? So I would make the effort to go to them. I would frequently just pop into people on my team, just say hello, how they're doing, check in on them, how's the family. Maybe that leads to a discussion about a work-related item. Maybe it doesn't. Going back to the be human, I think that the more you can relate to their situation, the more you can demonstrate your own vulnerability, demonstrate accountability. If you've made mistakes, call yourself out. Say, look, that was that one's on me. That was my mistake. I think your team will appreciate you more as a person and human if you can relate to them. And I think that's a real important part of leadership, of developing that type of relationship. You know, I had a leader once tell me, don't get too close to the people you work with. Um, and that kind of goes against how I would work. You can have a excellent relationship with the people you work with, but still have difficult conversations, make sure work is getting done. As long as you are always up front in terms of expectations, deliverables, and accountability, there's no reason you can't have both pieces. Yeah. In an ideal world, that would be the case. But sometimes there are times when it's essential to strike that balance, right? Between the needs of, say, the organization and employees. How have you been able to strike that balance when there might be a little bit of a disconnect? I think it's foundational to maintain a positive work environment, lead by example. And I think you need to have those things in place to understand the needs of your employees by popping in and understanding what's going on in that world that may not always be work-related, I think helps you understand their needs. You know, I have a strong work ethic, so I would lead with an example, but I was also sensitive to work-life balance. When I was working in a Fortune 500 company, Fortune 100 company, work from home was not something that really happened. Right, so you were in the office pretty much all the time. So there was really no work for home through most of my career. I had a boss at one point in working in an environment where it was a badge of honor to, well, I was here at 10 o'clock last night, or oh, I was here at midnight trying to get this project done, or whatever the case may be. I had a boss who would, from time to time, walk around and do bed checks around 6 o'clock at night just to see who was in the office, because that was a reflection of their commitment to the company or what have you. And for me, work-life balance was real important. So I needed to demonstrate that also for my team so that they knew that it was important and that they could have balance in their own life. I was packing up one day around 10 of 6. I wanted to get home to have dinner with my family. 
And again, I think the investment you make in your team is much like the investment you make in your kids. If you don't make that investment, you don't build that relationship. It's hard to deal through the tough times uh, if you don't have that relationship. And he, my boss is walking around doing bed checks and he sticks his head in my office and he sees me packing up to go. And he says, half day today, Brian? And I looked at him and said, no, I'm just heading out to lunch. Can I get you something? And he just didn't know how to respond to that because it was such an absurd thing to say, but it was really trying to counter how absurd his comment was. So he just turned all, turned away and left. <laughs> went back to his office. He didn't know how to respond to that. And I left and I went home. So I've always felt if my best isn't good enough, it's time to bond. And, and, you know, I work at Honeywell for 21 years and I think you have to force that balance sometimes. And by forcing that balance, my team could see that. That was one way that I would demonstrate it's okay to not be here at 10 o'clock every night. The other thing is the work is always the work. You always have challenging deadlines, projects that require an abundance of time. In that world, it could be preparing a strategic review for the CEO or preparing a board book for the comp committee of the board. Or um, it could be you're, you're, you're deep into due diligence on an acquisition target or, or compensation planning, which was something that we would do every year globally. We would have to roll it all up and share it all from every country, from every business and share it all with the CEO. That was very labor intensive. So those projects always had an end date at some point. And whether it's celebratory dinners or letting people take some time off without taking vacation, at the end of those, just take the Friday, don't worry about it. Or taking another day, don't worry about it. Or allowing them to work from home occasionally when they have a contractor coming to the house or a sick kid or whatever, even though at the time we didn't have policies around that. I think that's the way a leader can flex, particularly for people who are very strong workers and, and infuse some balance where balance wouldn't really have been available. I had one person who needed to be home when her kids came home from school. So I would let her leave at 2.30 in the afternoon and get back on at 4. And I knew she was working because the work product was always great. So, so you do what you need to do to work with your team, find the balance they need in their lives, but also make sure you're getting the work done. And if you do that, I think they'll even perform better for you. Understood. And you alluded to tough times being sometimes par for the course and sometimes it's not, but Creativity and innovation can be difficult to foster during tough times. How do you encourage that when morale is low? Well, I think it goes back to foundationally having a strong working relationship with your team so you can ride through the hard times as well as the good times. It's, you know, I, I go back to that kid example at a time I did have a teenage son. And I had invested time as he was young to build a relationship. So when he was going through hard times, I could go through those with him and we came out on the other side pretty effectively. If I didn't invest in the time early on, I couldn't sweep in when he was having hard times and now be the parent because he would not respect that because we haven't built the foundation. 
it's the same way with your teams. If you don't build a foundation and invest time in them, it's going to be difficult to root out the hard times. So I don't think it's any different than what I would normally do. You build on the foundation that you, as I say, you get what you give and you can work through it. Got it. And resistance to change can be a significant obstacle in any organization because change is hard. So what did you see and what did you learn from that experience? I think your ability to influence is one of the most critical skills you can have as a leader, particularly in a corporate environment. You need to understand how decisions are made. You need to understand who are the people you have to get to get on board to make those decisions. And one of the things that I learned over my career there, whether I'm the leader that someone's trying to convince them doing something, or I'm presenting something to my CEO and they want to do something different, how do you influence them without pissing them off in the process? So in other words, there are a hundred ways to say no without ever saying no. So one of the things I've seen people crash and burn with this, but you never say no to your CEO. If he wants to do something, you never say, no, we can't do that. Because they immediately get defensive and they think you're the one being defensive. They consider you being a bureaucrat and not willing to change. They believe your job, my job, is to enable what they want to do, not the other way around, which is true. So how do you influence that? I mean, the way I would do that is... I would say, well, we can do that. Positive, not defensive. We can do that. Here are the implications of doing that. And you lay them out. Not in a defensive way, but just matter-of-factly, here are the impact on the employees if it's an employee-related issue. Here's the impact on cost if it's a cost-related issue. Here are some alternatives. And you let them think about whether they still want to do what they initially said or would they rather go with one of these other alternatives, which may be one of the things that you want them to do. If you say, gee, that's not a good idea. We shouldn't do that because of these reasons. It's really, it's immediately going to be, why not? Why not do this? What data do you have? And they start pushing on you in a way that they may not be hearing you now because they don't feel you're hearing them. So, so I think there's a way of saying no by continuing to give them information that says, we can do what you want to do. Here are the implications of doing that. Here are some alternatives. And then have a dialogue around those things so you don't box them into saying no. You're giving them other things to consider and process. That to me has been the most effective way. I think that the other example I would give is um, there are times in the company that we've had to implement some very challenging changes to our benefits. And while it would have the air cover of the CEO, because in many respects, he was driving some of these changes, we didn't have business leaders or functional leaders on board. So it was pretty much my job to go around to these leadership teams and to present Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it and get their input on the best way to execute. So you're including them in the process, getting their buy-in by asking them for 
look, this is what we need to do. I need your help in understanding how's the best way to get this done in your business and what role can you play to support this? So it's all about influence. It's all about uh, understanding how decisions are made. Sometimes the most influential person in the room is another business leader or a functional leader who has the air of the C CEO. I would go to that person and work with them, get their buy-in to get their support. I think one example, and we haven't really talked much about self-awareness, but I think self-awareness is such a critical element to leadership, understanding how you're being perceived, being able to read a room, to evaluate how things went after the fact and what could I have done differently. And I think the, the best example I can give you is the very first presentation I made to uh, Dave Cody, who was a new CEO to Honeywell back in 2002. The GE background came up through finance organization, ran another company for a short period of time. And I'm presenting to him how we're going to be spending half a billion dollars on healthcare. And the tables that I'm using are foreign to him because they were put together by some HR guys, not by finance guys. So we spend the first 15 minutes trying to explain what these tables mean because he's never seen anything like this before. And the more time we try to explain it, the more credibility we're losing in the process. And we got through the meeting, but what I took from that meeting was I need to put my financial data to half a billion dollars. So he doesn't want a bunch of, he wants me linked to my CFO. I need to put these, this data in the same format that he's used to seeing financial data. So I looked at the Wall Street presentations. I looked at the presentations the CFO would make. I used the same tables and the same graphics, the waterfall bridges and other things that he would use. And I would incorporate all of the healthcare data into that. And then I would sit with my controller and CFO, go through it all, get their blessing, bring them to the meeting, and then present it. So now my CEO is looking at data in a format that he's very comfortable with and familiar with. So he immediately gets more confident in what he's seeing. And then he turns to his CFO and says, are you comfortable with this information? And all I want him to do is nod. And he nods, we're good to go. So I think there are different ways to influence. There are different learnings along the way. If you're a self-aware person, you take those learnings in and you figure out how can I do this better next time? What can I learn from this to apply forward? And, and I've seen people who are not very self-aware who would push and push and push and not know when to stop with the CEO to the point where the CEO's pissed off. You got to learn to fight another day sometimes and come back at it in a different way. So self-awareness, critical element to leadership and critical element to influence. Thank you so much for that. Those are really good stories that highlight the need for self-awareness and how it can be applied in social situations to drive a little bit of influence. So yeah, in addition to those attributes, ethical and social responsibility are becoming more and more integrated and expected in modern leadership. How do you approach those responsibilities in your roles? Yeah, well, I have to go back a bit for Honeywell. I mean, social responsibility has become such an area of focus now. 
in companies. And most companies are voluntarily reporting on it today, even though it's not a mandatory requirement to report on social responsibility. You know, if I think about Honeywell, Honeywell is like many other global companies. They have an overarching global philanthropic group of initiatives. As far back as I can remember, Honeywell has been focused around supporting, I would say, science, technology, engineering, and math in schools. We need more engineers. Honeywell would hire a lot of engineers in trying to encourage kids at a young age with some very creative programs that they would take to schools to enjoy math, to take math, to take science, and, and to hopefully grow engineers of the future is one of the areas, one of the ways that they, they would try to give back. I think in other areas, they had a very strong humanitarian relief for natural disasters that happened where their employees lived and worked, both in terms of corporate dollars going in, employee dollars going in, and, and supporting those areas globally, didn't matter where it was, and, and, and supporting diversity inclusion and inclusion. And I think that also goes way back before we even talked about diversity and inclusion, particularly with veterans. I mean, so Honeywell has always been a big supporter of veterans and hiring veterans, but also minorities and women. And I think those are areas where they really focus on the community. When it comes to, I would say, corporate responsibility, social responsibility, I would say much like your, your goals and objectives to support your growth and productivity in the company, most companies have objectives regarding corporate social responsibility, and you really need to treat them no different as a leader. I mean, as a leader, you need to understand what is expected of you to support the corporate mission to better society and the environment, how you can be a champion in the organization to achieve those objectives, and how do you create line of sight for your team to the social responsibility objectives of the company. I think that's what you need to do as a leader, but also to lead to example, to participate in the community initiatives, the volunteer initiatives. I still have my Honeywell hard hat from working on homes and doing some volunteer communities with my team, which is also a great way for team building as well. Whether it was at Honeywell or at the business group, we did, we did those types of initiatives to support the local community. And I think any leader, particularly in today's environment, needs to be conscious of the mission of the company and how they support that mission and how they create a lot of site for their employees. Did you do any uh, landscaping and tap back into your earlier days? I did. I did. And that's when we would get into house pro home projects, I would typically gravitate to the outside because that's when my skill set was more valuable than working inside, although I could do inside as well. But I was probably worth more valuable working outside than I was working inside. Yeah. So I think and Rind reflecting, hindsight is twenty twenty. What advice would you give to your younger self back on your experiences and lessons that you've learned throughout your journey? I would say believe in yourself in what you can accomplish. I mean, I think I mentioned growing up in a blue collar neighborhood, a blue collar environment. You know, I rarely stepped out of Rhode Island or had influences, professional influences, who would get me to think bigger than I would say a blue collar job. And, 
And the first time I ever actually flew on an airplane was when I was 21. So it was just a very different environment, very different world in terms of what your scope of what was possible. But I was always driven to do more as an individual. I had no idea what was going to take me or what I would be doing, but I was driven to do more. And, you know, many years later, I've been to 35 countries and counting. And so believe in yourself, believe in your capable, believe in your dreams. I think that's, you think beyond your environment. And I think that's probably what I've told myself because I didn't say, I thought I was going to be a school teacher. You know, that's what I was going to school for, to be a biology teacher, biology and health teacher. And I just got to a point where I wanted to be more than that or do something different than that. And how do I get into a corporate environment? And I eventually had a graduate assistantship with a company that got me exposure to corporate life and things started taking off from there. Got it. Thank you. From the past to the future, the future of leadership is in the hands of the next generation. So, Brian, for the next crop of leaders, what do you see as important factors for them to consider in this ever-evolving, fast-paced, changing world to make an impact? Yeah, I would say don't lose sight of the importance of social connectedness uh, in, in office face time. Post-pandemic, there is desire for a lot of people to work remotely. My kids are working remotely, which has significant advantages, there's no doubt, but, but also creates some isolation and lack of affiliation with the company you're working for. And this can inhibit creativity and you lose the opportunity for spontaneous ideation gained by just walking down the hall and stepping into someone's office and say, hey, look, I'd like to kick around something with you. And all of a sudden you got ideas germinating, which can lead to lead to something to the brainstorm the whiteboarding that you organically and spontaneously do and i worry that we're losing some of that and there's got to be a balance between work for home and how you can pull people together so that they can be creative and innovate in a way but they can also develop relationships beyond the zoom meeting and so how do you strike that balance of working from home getting together, bringing people together to work issues or to drive initiatives, bringing them physically together from time to time. When you have a generation that's used to smartphones and used to texting and used to reaching people other than face-to-face, -face, it's important to find ways to pull people together. And I would say for the next generation of leaders, make sure you address social connectedness and make sure you address loneliness because loneliness can be a part of that as well and find ways to create affiliation and bring people together. It'll be better for the company. It'll be better for your team, better for the listener. leader. Absolutely. Technology hopefully can be a proponent of that and providing some connectedness, but I think you're right. There's always going to be room for in-person. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I really enjoyed the stories and so many different lessons. I hope listeners were taking notes. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps it up for this episode that shine light on traits of successful and ineffective leaders. 
take stock of yourself and the environment. Did you learn something new? I'm Vedith Huet. Lead by example.